Welcome, everybody, to the Health and Wellness Show. Today is Friday, December 8th, 2017. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have a full crew, Tiffany, Elliot, Doug, Gabby, and Erica. Hey, everybody. Hello. 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 I remembered the names this time. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Uh, So today, we're going to talk about consumerism. Consumerism is consuming us. Uh, so, you know, we're approaching that, uh, that time. We just had Black Friday and Cyber Monday and everybody's talking about Christmas and presents. And we wanted to delve into it. I guess you might say like from a mental health perspective, talking about consumerism, uh, the desire to shop, uh, you know, advertising propaganda, what it actually does to you. Um, mm. you know, the, the mechanisms by which that works and, and kind of like how you get roped into it. Uh, so I guess just to start off the conversation, uh, I am completely 100% guilty of this. I like to think that I'm a little bit less susceptible, but that's probably just like my ego talking. Uh, cause I totally will get like, holy crap, there's a sale, you know, 25% off, like silicone baking where whatever it might be. Um, so I don't know. How do you guys feel about that? Do you, do you feel like you get drawn in once in a while or you just don't look at it at all? Or how do you feel about that? I get drawn like in, drawn in all the time. Yeah. <laughs> It depends on what it is. Yeah. 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 I think actually, I I think that everybody, you know, is, is actually susceptible to it. That, you know, every, like even the people who like the most cynical person who kind of thinks, well, you know, that stuff doesn't work on me. I think it actually does. And I think that, uh, you know, these, uh, what I, I don't know what you'd want to call it. Like it just advertising has gotten to such a sophisticated level that it's working. Even if you're actively trying to resist it, it's still working. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. I like yeah. to look at sale papers that come in the newspaper, sure. but I don't necessarily go out and buy those things. I just like to look at them, but mm. Uh, I'll buy myself things like on Amazon or something, but that's usually books or something. It's not anything that's been advertised. Mm-hmm. At least I don't think. Mm-hmm. But what do I know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, feel like I, find I, I find that. Uh, go ahead, Elliot, please. Uh, ahead, oh, Elliot, please. I'm particularly susceptible to supplement sales. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> on certain websites, you know that there's a there's one in the UK. I won't say the name of it, but um, there's always a 30% discount. It's like (laughs) uh, a couple of weeks ago, it was Black Friday sales. So they were offering 25% off. And then the day after, I received an email saying, uh, you know, flash order, 33% off. And we get these every (laughs) single week. Um, But then sometimes if you go on that particular website, you know, they'll have like 50% off. And if it's a supplement that I know has benefits for certain people, and I mean, it's not something that I necessarily think that I need to take, but I see it and I just think, damn, I want that supplement. And I, and I always end up buying things and they just end up sitting in my cupboard and I don't yeah. use them. And I probably have no use for them whatsoever. But yeah, I'm particularly susceptible for those. You can so open up a I'm... pharmacy. <laughs> yeah. That, that is a pretty standard process, right? Like, uh, or tactic to mark, you know, you mark your inventory up to 150% and then say it's on sale at 100% markup. Yeah. yeah. How do you really makes, know you what know? the real price is? Because mm-hmm. everything is always discounted all the time. Mm-hmm. You don't know what. Yeah. 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 
Well, I think it comes like the psychological stuff we're talking about comes down to when you have the thing in your hand, right? I mean, it, it, there is a giant part leading up to that, but it's kind of like, I don't know, let's take something, a hypothetical example, like what's something that's not like super practical that you would just blow money on? Shoes. Like shoes. (laughs) (laughs) So is there like when you're thinking of a tablet? Yeah, there you go. (laughs) So when you're thinking up to getting this thing, you have the anticipation, I'm going to get a new thing. It's a new toy. It's going to, it's going to feel good. It's going to be a new experience. And then you get it and you're like, yes, I got the new thing. And then, whether you know you wear them for a week or a tablet you use it for three months you know and that psychological moment where you get a dopamine release when you actually have the thing in your hand like you've you've got the prize almost yeah you can have that dopamine release just looking Mm -hmm. looking at stuff or window shopping or walking through a store and then you get it and then it just comes down Mm. yeah yeah, and I think that um, a lot of advertising actually works on that that principle. It's kind of like advertising is like the thing that you need, you know, the thing, oh, yeah, I got to go get that. I got to hunt that down and find the thing, the really important thing that I just found out about. And then, yeah, it's all like, it, it's really like, you know, let me, let me give a, an example, actually. This is the thing uh, that actually stopped me playing video games. At, although, admittedly, I was kind of getting tired of them at that point anyway, but... I read an article that was on Cracked, and I've actually looked for this article again, and I can't find it now. I don't know if it's still on the internet or not. But they're basically talking about how video game designers use, like, the latest psychology to basically get people hooked. Like, to get people addicted to their game so that they keep on playing it, and they'll keep on, you know, spending money for their memberships or whatever the case may be. In my case, it was World of Warcraft, and it was a subscription-based thing. So it was, like, all these psychological tricks that they use that keep you coming back and like really kind of hacking and exploiting human psychology in such a way that you will just keep on pressing the big monkey button over and over and over again, um, repeatedly for several hours a day. And I think that like advertising kind of works on the same basis. It's kind of like, it's, it's exploiting that kind of psychological thing, like be it the dopamine system or whatever, you know, getting satisfaction and chasing these things, these ephemeral things that you don't actually need, and so it, I, I don't know. I think that there's a lot going on there um, that it's, it's kind of exploiting things that are inherent to our, our psychology. Well, corporations yeah. hire psychologists and especially child totally. psychologists because oh, sure. they know about child development. They know the tricks to use in their advertisements and that's how they get kids. They like to get them while they're young so they can make like a lifelong uh, consumer or brand loyalty. Yeah, they, they call like it to call to it. cradle to grave yeah. branding. <laughs> oh, Sounds like imprinting, you know, kind of like imprinting an image or a brand in child's brain so they will get an association to it, you know, like Pavlovian mm-hmm. dogs. Well, like Kleenex, right? Anybody who grew up in the U.S., you don't say tissue, you say Kleenex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's in Canada. Yeah, that's too. true. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And I think in one of the articles we read, they said that children as young as one year old can identify certain marketing brands. Brand recognition. Yeah. And they like to pair certain symbols because you have a symbol and you have the emotion or the feeling that goes along with that symbol. And they they pair them with uh, 
whatever it is they're selling. Like if they're selling a DVD and you put that little Oscar symbol, like this was an Oscar winner, uh-huh. people will be more likely to buy that DVD. Yep, huh. for sure. Well, it's all yeah. about like using the data, right? I mean, even uh, Netflix is came out when it when it did come out. The the news came out that that show House of Cards was built on data. They they really? aggregated a bunch of research data about what people wanted to see, and then they wrote a show around it. <laughs> so, you know, and then it became one of the most popular shows on the planet for a minute, anyway. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we don't need to go into that whole story. But, uh, <laughs> But yeah, it's all about using the the data, and it's there's a really interesting thing that's happening where we're putting so much data out into the sphere. There's that tired old euphemism, right? That like we generate every day, we generate more data than we ever have in history, or something like. I don't know how true that is, mm. but uh, you know, I do know it's it's many, 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 many teraflops uh, that are generated, you know, for, of of just readable data about what people are doing and who they are. So as we continue to add to that, that is what people will go to. Like you used to do like a direct mail campaign, you know, or uh, phone phone surveys and stuff like that to find out where people were. Now you can just access this giant bank. Um, and of course, you know, you have to pay for various services and stuff, but it's getting much and much easier to say, I have a demographic of uh, 2.5 million people, you know, and a certain mm. percentage of them are this and a certain percentage of them are this. And so I can target that and I've made, you know, my, uh, whatever profits that I was shooting for that uh, mm. what I'm, I'm not trying to ramble. All of that is like easier to do now than it used to be. So we're going to see it continually ramping and ramping up, but it is it's yeah. weird how it's all ephemeral. It, it, it's like the thing where like Facebook and Instagram are valued at a certain number per user. So it's like $40 per user. But where does that come from? You know, like uh, mm. the generation of value and the, the assignment of value is starting to get really strange. Well, mm. and if you create consumers, young children essentially then you have lifelong consumers and so there was actually a scientific study called the nag factor and they were talking about and it's in the the movie the corporation there's an interview with a professor lynn who is very critical of the industry and she was talking about and this was several years ago how they spend over 12 billion dollars a year marketing to children and she talks about how comparing the marketing of yesteryear to the marketing of today is like comparing a BB gun to a smart bomb. Huh. You know, mm-hmm. that, that if, if media can get kids to nag their parents to buy products, they found that um, up to 40% more purchases happen. Because the, mm. and, and, and I've been there, like I never used to take my kids grocery shopping because they would just nag, 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 nag for all the, that brand recognition, the Cocoa Puffs, the whatever it is. And mm. finally, parents just get so frustrated. They're like, fine, I'll buy it. So the next time any of you are in America or in a Walmart, just observe mm. children and their inner reaction with the parents in a shopping scenario. You know, I'll just buy you the Barbie. Just be quiet. You know what I mean? So you have lifelong consumers. And that seems a great way to infiltrate the the home. If you can infiltrate the home via the child's mind, um, then, yeah, when I I read that article and that that study, that was fascinating. Um, And I guess that's why it's so important for these sort of big corporations and multinational uh, 
companies and things to to basically um to to to, to get the children while they're young. Sure. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I, mean, I think already... some of them also have like these characters, like Eminem characters, for example. <laughs> And they write a story about it, put it in a book, and the kid is snuggling up with his mom or dad while he's reading to them. And they have this warm, snuggly feeling now whenever they think of M&Ms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sure. Well, you want that kid to have all the M&M plush toys, and, you know, mm-hmm. you want that. It is a completely cold, calculating corporate viewpoint. That's what you want. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it is psychopathic on its face, but that's, you know the cold truth about how the system works. Mm-hmm. So uh, the the neg factor, I think, is pretty wild because we even get that between people, right? Um, although I guess it's maybe not so much nagging, but it's a jealousy factor between adults mm. where you got the new phone, so now I want the new phone, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, peer pressure, for lack of a better word. Um, mm-hmm. Keeping up with the Joneses. yeah. Now this may be <laughs> this may be a no-brainer question, but what do you guys think is leading us in the direction of you know uh, ephemeral sat- satisfaction from ephemeral things as opposed to from real things? Now we could say yeah, it's the progression of society and culture, television, media, all those things. But do you guys feel like? I guess my question is: We've talked about this before a little bit in the sense that is it is it just kind of chaos? Like we've everybody's just satisfying themselves on mass, and so that's what we have here. Or is there some kind of a, you know, like a, some kind of steering, some kind of guiding of this? You know, where there's, you know, agreement between multinational corporations that decide on tactics to use and stuff like that. I realize I sound tinfoil hat, but I'm curious what you guys think about that. Hmm. I think it is purposeful. Because they do use psychological ploys to uh, target people's, I don't know, buying habits. Um, But I think that at the root of it, people, especially nowadays, there's a sense of ennui or boredom or loneliness or they're trying to fill a hole in themselves. Like there's a lack of social connectedness and meaning in life. And yeah. people will do whatever it takes to kind of fill that up. And whether it means buying products or engaging in <clears throat> drug use or recreational sex, they're going to do something. And the advertisers know that. So they take advantage. Yeah. 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 I would agree so with that. I think that, um, you know, I don't think there's necessarily like like you mentioned agreement between corporations or something like that. I mean, well, at the same time, if you follow them up far enough, what is it like? There's five different companies that hold, own the whole planet or something like that. Yeah. But um, I think that more often, what is being sold, you know, just because you know, I guess we look at an advertisement and, we, and it's selling like Pepsi, and you're like, well, I don't drink Pepsi, therefore that advertising didn't work on me. But really, like. What they're kind of selling overall is that lifestyle, right? That consumerist kind of lifestyle. It's kind of like all ads are doing that. That idea that if I buy a product, whatever, even if this product doesn't match what I'm looking for, um, but if I buy a product, it will kind of fill that hole that Tiff has been talking about. So it's kind of like uh, a way to kind of, it's, it's almost like keeping people addicted to the system. You know, it's a way to kind of uh, make people kind of go, uh, look for satisfaction in these kind of um, 
useless products. I mean, not all of them are yeah. useless, of course. I mean, there's, you know, you can come off a bit like a commie here, like, you know, talking about smashing the capitalist system and all that kind of stuff. I don't necessarily think that's ne- that's a bad thing, you know, to to um, to have products available that you need. It's just kind of this whole kind of consumerist ideology and this this how everybody has seemed to have bought into this, that they need to look outside themselves for some means of kind of psychological satisfaction. Right. And it is um, fleeting, like we mentioned at the beginning. Yeah. It's, it's also like that a... idea of plentitude. There's just so much of everything. Mm-hmm. Was there over like 30 or 100,000? I don't have my notes, but uh, over 100,000 items in your average American supermarket? Mm-hmm. Mm. Wow. Yeah, what I is your question, Jonathan? Is, I think it's like a system of self-gratification. It seems to have a, like an intelligence of its own. Mm. You know, like it manifests, you know, like this, in a sense. It's kind of like informed from a very self-gratification style kind of system. Yeah, uh, one of our... One of our chatters, uh, Shane, made an interesting comment. He said that uh, when such things become addictive, dopamine is probably uh, reinforces the desires for control and power that already exist. So he says, I doubt people are totally being exploited since there's a matching desire for exploitation on the part of the consumer. And I I think that makes sense uh, because I'll find that in myself too. You go to the store and they don't have what I'm looking for. So then I'm like, "Uh, I'll just get this little wooden spoon for my kitchen. See, I'm the opposite. I'll walk out. Mm-hmm. If yeah. I don't find what I'm looking for, I'll leave. Yeah. That, I don't know, that matching desire for exploitation on the part of the consumer. I don't know about that. I think that, I think that, that matching desire for exploitation is something that has also been created. Um, I don't know, though. I'd have to think I don't know that. if I would call it hey, a desire for exploitation. They have a desire for something, but... You ask the average consumer, oh, do you want to be exploited? No, I just need this. <laughs> <laughs> I want it. It. <laughs> it is kind of, a, I, kind of a base thing, right? Like mm-hmm. the, ch- the chimp with the highest pile of mangoes kind of thing. I tend to think it's a bit of both. Yeah. I mean, like from an evolutionary perspective, um, like you're talking about plenty- plentiful things. Um, there's, I mean, there's no other time that... that I know of there's no other time that we have had access to all of these different things like the click of a button you know like for instance now you go on Amazon and you can get something you can get practically anything delivered to your doorstep the next day Um, and that's Mm. become the norm and like you know 100,000 different things at a superstore I mean that is practically I mean, in terms of human evolution, I don't know if that has ever been the case. So there's got yeah. to be um, some sort of psychological effect that comes with that, you know. Um, and I guess it, I guess it fosters a sen- sense of entitlement, you know, in a lot of people. Um, I know, for instance, I've, I found myself that say when I order something, I expect it's going to come the next day, and then it doesn't <laughs> turn up. I'm, mm. I'm kind of annoyed. But I should really be thankful and, and grateful that I even have the opportunity to have something, you know, to have, have access to these things. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, uh, does it create the, the problem or is it a symptom of the problem? I, uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is that these companies are probably simply capitalizing on, on something that already exists in us. 
but whether that can actually um, f- foster the growth of that negative aspect of our character and uh, the, the the way. Um, yeah, it's a difficult one. <laughs> yeah, our animal instincts <laughs> get gratified. Right. Mm, right. Hey, we well, we have a caller on the line here. Oh, cool. Hey, hey guys, it's Shane. Hey, hey Shane. <laughs> hey, Shane. <laughs> Explain yourself. Yes. So, um, yeah, I didn't really uh, uh, go into detail, but the uh, when I was talking about matching desire for exploitation, I don't mean a desire to be exploited, but to mm. you know find some uh, some vulnerability or some some exploitation in. Oh, I got a good deal. You know, I'm making out here. Um, mm. And like it's it's that sense I think uh, that you know kind of feeds into um, uh, you know the that that addictive uh, nature and I, I think essentially like it's 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 feeding this fantasy uh, that people have of themselves when they're in that buying mode you know that gives them this this sense of power and so mm-hmm. you know I, I don't think that. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't let people off uh, that easily in the sense that, you know, it's these big, bad corporations and that, you know, there's not a there, – there is a there's a corresponding responsibility that, that people have. Um, and, you know, I, I think uh, just in general, our, it's, it's very easy for our, our natures to, to seek, um, you know, that, that, type of, that type of power and uh, – and, and th- and, you know that 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 whole realm uh, where um, people sure. just want and consume, and you know they want the excitement, and yeah. you know it's not it's not necessarily uh, uh, that you know we're we're innocent in this. I, I think. Right. I wonder. Well, there are yeah. lots of people out there. Somebody in the chat, anarchist, said uh, that Shane was talking about retail therapy. And that's true for a lot of people. Some people are really into all the shopping and all the sales and they want the latest this and the latest that and they're never satisfied. But maybe amongst ourselves and maybe some of the people in our audience, we find it a little bit baffling. But there are scores of people all over the world who are really into this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And can we say that they're being exploited? I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, maybe they are in a certain to yeah, a certain it, extent, but they it's are kind of, of asking for it. It's kind of the same thing with uh, with with any type of addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the victim mentality is is extremely extremely popular in you know describing these things, and that you know these people are are just uh, victims of you know dopamine hits and and all these other things. When it's it's really, I don't think it's that's that's removing the responsibility of the individual and really allows the uh, behavior to continue. Sure. Hmm. Yeah, I wonder. Uh, I guess, uh, Shane, does it apply kind of to what you're saying that uh, the scenario where, like, say if you're showing off something that you got, you might say what it cost first if it were cheap. You know, like if I got a coat from a Goodwill, then, like, the first thing I'm going to say is, like, check this coat out. I got it for two bucks. You know, <laughs> yeah. not, like, not the lapels are really cool, but, like, the buttons, like, how much it costs because it was cheap. And right. Like, yeah, won. and I mean, so that, now I'm that's, displaying to you that I won. Right. Yeah, and that that's that's one sense of uh, control. Like you know, I I made out here, and I I um I was able to exploit the 
you know, I was able to win uh, because I, you know, I saved so much, you know, really, you know, uh, especially people with uh, buying addictions, they, you know, they buy stuff and then it remains in their closet and they never wear it, you know, it was it on sale. yeah, just because it was on sale is it it that, that sense <laughs> of uh, control that gave them the, you know, that, that desire like really kicked in. But yeah. I don't understand that. Even if something is on sale, by not buying it, you would be saving money anyway. <laughs> right. I don't of your money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, conundrum. I, but there's levels too, right? I mean, there's different people. Like some people are so totally addicted to consumerism that they're really like spending out of control, getting stuff that they literally don't need at all or could never use. Going so it's like a, a form of pathology. And then there's people who may be more susceptible to that if it's something they need. Like I get sucked into maybe two or three ad clicks a year off of the internet, off of like Facebook or whatever. But it's always something like, you know, hiking gear or something that I think is cool that pertains to me. So I might, but I'm not going to click on something like that for, you know, shoes. Um, <clears throat> so it's, yeah, but because of sophisticated levels, advertising um, algorithms, you probably wouldn't be, yeah. that, that wouldn't be piped to you, right? Like it's like they've That's figured true, yeah. you out to a T. Yep. And they're going yeah. to put exactly what you would buy in front of you. Yeah, they have Wait, my no, profile yeah. down for sure. Like, yes, I am no, interested you. in that pack, you know, for sure. Um, well, one, one thing that kind of like it, this reminds me of too is um, just the um, the narcissistic or you know psychopathic uh, tendency to want to possess, and you know mm-hmm. it's it, it's kind of you know it's that same seed that exists in this uh, consumerism where it's just about possession and, you know, really don't really care about either the consequences of, you know, going to debt, um, the, mm. you know, any of the other ramifications. It's just, it's just that, that desire for possession. So really you're buying a feeling. You're not really buying a product. Yeah. Yeah. It seems that way. Yeah. Well, it isn't, I mean, I think that's fairly widely known, but maybe not like if, as a pop culture example, if you look at the show, Mad Men, I don't know if any of you guys ever watched that, but uh, how often during that show, as they're pitching ad campaigns, they're like, look, we're selling the feeling. We're selling the image. We're not selling your product. Mm-hmm. You can make whatever you want. You know, we don't care what mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it goes back to that it's fantasy. It's interesting because if you look at um, older advertisements, um, you know, going back to like the, the 50s, 60s or something like that, a lot of times the way that they were trying to sell the product is through more logical means like our product is the best it does this it does this it does this it's it's great you should buy it for that reason you don't see that in advertising very much anymore it is really more about selling kind of a feeling like a lifestyle like this will complete you this uh you know be the cool kid on the block who's got this thing you know it's 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 funny that it isn't really about the product at all it's more about, you know, especially if you look at something like pharmaceutical advertisements and people like running through fields with puppies and things like that. It's like, it's not really about the product itself. It's about, look at freedom. This is what you yeah. should buy. Yeah. All right. I'm yeah. going to head out. Thanks for uh, okay. having me on, Thanks, guys. Shane. Thanks, Shane. See Thanks, Shane. Bye. Bye. But could there be a balance? Like, is all consumerism bad, you know? I go back to my days uh, visiting the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union. There were no ads at all. Mm. <laughs> um, yes, <laughs> everybody wore the like the same jewelry, even you know, and no electronic watches. 
I don't know. We, hmm. Do we really want to go there? There is or something to be said to... for like diversity and, and mixing things up makes for a really interesting culture. And that's, you know, so there, there's a fine line. I think there, I do honestly think that uh, elements of uh, capitalism make total sense. You know, you, hmm. you come up with your thing, you work towards it. You might work with other people, but they benefit as well. And you make a thing and then you give it to people and you make a living, you, got, you know, mm -hmm. to, to strip it down. Um, I think that makes sense. And so there's like one extreme of like everybody's on the same page, communist society and the other extreme of total free market capitalism. And I feel like the balance lands somewhere in the middle. Um, but yeah. you're never going to get everybody on that same page ever. Yeah. I don't think. Yeah. Well, it kind of comes to the idea of just being an informed consumer as well, you know, mm. where your money's going is what you're supporting or not. Yeah, people are yeah. always going to need stuff. They're always going to need clothes and household items and food and things like that. But, yeah, I don't know what, what is the line between being a consumer and being totally consumed by consumerism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like, yeah, are I mean, you guys familiar with Marie Kondo? No. She wrote a book called, uh, I think, The Japanese Art of Tidiness. Um, oh, yeah. I've heard yeah. of the book. And it's about one of the main principles of the book is you go through all your stuff and you pick it up and you say, does this bring me joy? Uh, and if it doesn't bring you joy, then you get rid of it. And mm. it's real simple, but it actually makes sense once you start going through that. There are obvious, like, you know, my microwave may not bring me joy, but I'm going to use it. Right. So there's obvious <laughs> things. <laughs> I was going to say that about a vacuum cleaner. Too. Yeah. Like, there's no, obvious things. It's, about joy. it's about joy. exactly what I was going to say, Doug. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But all the stuff that you're not using, you know, like your clothes, your trinkets, ornaments, stuff like that, um, mm. or whatever else it might be, you know, like yeah, I, but then I have, you have a, a, you get well, into just, what's the definition of joy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Is joy just dopamine or is it like, is this really a real thing? But the, but the problem with that is that say if you have an alcoholic and they're looking at five bottles of vodka in front of them, that's probably going to bring them joy. But for <laughs> their best interest, it would probably be good for them to throw out the alcohol. So yeah, how, how, that's a good point. So I guess it comes back to, you know, what is the definition of joy? Yeah, and I think that's a big part of it is too, like, and part of Marie Kondo's whole thing is bringing your life into order. You know, so I think in that scenario, it would be like, well, if somebody's an alcoholic, they should focus on that first, you know. Um, but she also does get a little bit more esoteric, too, to it's it's like you anthropomorphize objects almost so that like when you come into the house, you you would sort of anthropomorphize your shoes. And then to make them happy, you're going to put them in a place where they're comfortable and clean, you know, and away from traffic. Okay. And now my now my shoes are happy. So my environment. <laughs> it's like. Uh, but I think that's actually very interesting. It's a, it's an effective way to look at it. Mm. But it, you know, could it, could it be that it, it actually attaches you more to the things around you so that you get less consumerist impulses because the consumerist impulses, like if everything were really worth what we thought it were worth, we wouldn't need so much stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so if you put more value on the things that you do have, then you would need less things in your own mind. So that's where I well, think that, that technique up, becomes interesting. That brings up an interesting thing too, because one of the, the things that um, we were looking at for this show was the whole idea of planned obsolescence in products. And I think, you know, back in the day, and I keep on saying back in the day, I sound like an old man. Um, <laughs> you know, people would build things and products and stuff to last, 
You know, you would buy something because you knew it was good quality. It was going to last you a long time. You might even be able to hand it down to your kids. And, you know, that was kind of the, the, the thing that people would look for. Um, clothing was sturdier, you know, all kinds of stuff around the house was sturdier. Whereas these days there's this whole planned obsolescence thing. And it's not necessarily that they are planning for the thing to become obsolete or to be, to break. Um, although I think that certainly does come into it, but there's also the whole idea of the cheap stuff, you know, like cheap Ikea furniture or something. That stuff is not built to last. It's built to last, you know, a couple of years or something like that. And then, oh, it's fallen apart. Got to get a new one. So, yeah, I mean, the, the whole idea of like kind of putting a, a personal value on your stuff um, so that you don't need more stuff. I mean, if that stuff wears out or breaks, then you're right back into the consumerist ideology of having to go out and buy a new one. It totally is, yeah. Yep. Well, when I, I was think, a kid, before I knew anything about planned obsolescence, I would watch like commercials on TV. I was a pretty young kid, like maybe like 10 or so. And uh, I would think to myself, like, why are car dealerships open all the time? Like, and they're always having all these sales Sales. on cars. And I would think the same thing, like, about appliances, like refrigerators and stoves and TVs and all that stuff. I'm like, how do they manage to have people come into their store every day and buy stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't that stuff last? Like years? I mean, why is the store open every day? How do they even make money? <laughs> People go in there every day to buy a refrigerator or yeah. a washer and a dryer. It just didn't make any sense to me. And it still kind of doesn't make any sense to me. I think that if you need a big item or a big ticket item, like furniture or an appliance or a car or something like that, mm-hmm. it should be more like you your thing breaks down or it gets old and you can't use it anymore. You should have to commission it. But to have a store that sells those big ticket items open every single day, it still doesn't make sense. And multitudes of them. Yeah. I mean, look in the U.S. When you go to any major city, there's not one car dealership. There's 15 or yeah. 20. Yeah. How, there's how car dealerships that are everywhere. many cars? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. And just a car manufacturer, just one in one region, can make like 1,500 cars per day. Who needs so many cars? Yeah. <laughs> I well, that's one <laughs> thing comes to mind for me about that, too, is the stress on the uh, the business owners. Like, you know how much money you have to have out to have a lot full of cars? Uh, mm. You know, you're in debt for millions of dollars, and that's on your mind every single day. Mm-hmm. So that, I mean, talk about adding stress to the kind of, you know, collective subconscious. And then the salespeople mm. having to meet those sales quotas. Yeah. That would be terrible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there was one statistic in an article we read called the obsession of our obsession with stuff. And I think we have a clip by the lady <clears throat> that made the video. But she talked about how in 2003, the United States had more private cars than licensed drivers. <laughs> That's really? crazy. Whoa. I mean, that's 2003. Like, Think about that. That's 14 years ago. Think about yeah. what the stats are now mm-hmm. on that. Yeah. That answers my question of why can I, I cannot find a parking space in front of my house. There used to be all the space. Now there's the, like every family has like four cars, you know. <laughs> Mom, <Yeah>. dad, you know, <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> let's, uh, let's play that clip. That would be a good time to do that. We'll come back. 
Well, I spent 20 years traveling the world, tracking the factories where our stuff is made and the dumps where it's dumped. And the things that I saw were fascinating. I realized that all this stuff in our life has these hidden impacts, a hidden social, environmental, economic, emotional impact all over the world. And I wanted to share what I'd found with people here so that we knew what we were participating in when we just keep buying all this consumer stuff. So I developed a live presentation where I would talk about where all our stuff comes from and where it goes. And the, the presentation was so popular that I couldn't keep up with requests to give it. So I made a little film about it. It's a 20-minute, fast-paced, fact-filled film that's on the Internet. To my total astonishment, it became a huge success. In the first 18 months after it was released, over 7 million people saw it. And I was flooded with requests, literally tens of thousands of emails, asking for much more information. And so I wrote the Story of Stuff book to provide that information. We've organized our consumer society around this take-make-waste frenzy of taking the incredible resources that the planet provides, making consumer stuff with it, and then just running it through the system, throwing it away, replacing it as fast as possible. It's an absolute frenzy, and it's bumping up against limits, limits of the planet. We're using too much stuff. You know, we're bumping up limits in terms of energy, in terms of climate, in terms of water and resources, and also bumping up against limits in terms of quality of life. Increasingly, people are finding that on this complete frenzy, take-make-way system, it's just not fulfilling. We've, we've lost touch with our communities and our families and the things that really make us happy. So both in terms of the physical environment and in terms of our emotional health, it's just not working. I'm not anti-stuff. I'm not saying we shouldn't have and appreciate our stuff. It's actually the opposite. I'm saying we should appreciate it. We should have reverence and recognition for all the effort that went into this. And if you actually go to those factories and see the people sewing our clothes or putting together our electronics and think about the journey it has to take back to us, it really makes us want to treat our stuff a little better. The number one thing that I do to reduce my waste is I live in community. I know my neighbors, I'm friends with them, we share. That means we each don't have to have a lawnmower and a fax machine and a bicycle, but we can share all these things. We can turn to the community rather than the commercial marketplace to meet our needs. You can also avoid single-use disposable things. Just build into your daily practices stuff like taking your own cup and taking your own bag to the store. It's, it's not that hard once you sort of build it into your life. We think of that as designing waste out of our whole system. Recycling is good, of course, but there's a reason why recycling comes third in the mantra, reduce, reuse, recycle. Recycling is the last thing you should do. That's only if you can't avoid bringing this material into your life in the first place. The better thing to do is avoid buying so much stuff, especially overpackaged stuff. Reduce as much as you can, and then if you absolutely have to have something you throw away, then recycle it. Each year, they calculate the day at which we've used that year's worth of natural resources. In 2009, that day was September 25th. That means by September 25th, 2009, we had used up the planetary's bioproduction for that year. From September 25th on, we're basically consuming on credit. We're eating into the planet's capital, which undermines the very systems that we need to produce next year's stuff. So I just find that a shocking figure that we're using more than the planet provides each year, but nobody's talking about it. That is a really interesting statistic. Uh, I wonder how they would measure something like that. Yeah. But she makes a great point. Um, you know, and one of our chatters said us, uh, made a comment on something I said before that, you know, being attached to your stuff, kind of like Marie Kondo talks about, the chatter anarchists that may be more connected than attached. And I think that makes sense. It's more of a feeling of mm. connection and value towards your stuff than an attachment. Because yeah. it's, uh, I guess, what makes that difference of uh, voluntary. You know, an attachment is not necessarily voluntary. Yeah.
Yeah, you can be connected to a certain item that you have because it is useful to you, Mm -hmm. like a tool or a sewing machine or something that keeps your food cold or warm. It doesn't spoil. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it has to have some kind of intrinsic value, not just something that you... I don't want to poo-poo art or anything, but something that you hang on yeah. your wall that you feel a connection to. Yeah. I feel some conflict about the communal ideas, too, and I'm just being completely honest here. Like, I realize uh, but the, the idea of, like, if somebody comes over and asks to borrow my truck, I'm probably going to say, sure, you can borrow the truck. But if it's, like, an arrangement where we're sharing my truck, I, I'm going to be like, just get your own. <laughs> so i do feel well, that what way if you need to borrow his chainsaw right but then if it, you know maybe i will but i'm gonna try to buy my own chainsaw eventually you know, that would be the so what you're saying is you're not really into her concept nope <laughs> i guess not because he might I, break it i guess not. Yeah, I'll pay is, for it. did you have problems sharing as a child jonathan <laughs> No, I feel I, I I do honestly I feel like I'm a generally generous person, but I do have that impulse where it's like I don't want to get into an arrange a sharing arrangement, you know. Yeah. Uh, but that's probably programmed from our culture, right? Because really, what's wrong with that? If I'm working and I'm not using my truck, what is the big deal if somebody drives it somewhere? Hmm. You know. So when you really break it down objectively, stuff. yeah, <laughs> I suppose there you go. Or it's and you'll just... have to buy new stuff sooner than you would. Yeah. yeah. Well, a lot of the times it comes down to I think like. It's just my stuff. You know, if you really like just go with the base kind of reptilian impulse that it doesn't even go to that point where you're like, oh, you're going to wear it out or you might break it. It's like, no, it's mine. It's not yours. Yeah. That's and true. that's that like, you know. And the rest is like, narratives. Yeah. Squirrel with a horde yeah. of acorns, you know. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> that brings up something fascinating. Actually, I've been watching recently the show uh, Hoarders because I had never really watched it. Before. Oh, that is a fascinating show. Holy that cow. That show makes me so angry yeah <laughs> i've seen well, it a the, few times the pathologies are really yes deep and, and fascinating i think uh, you know i don't mean put an water, example but... for those of us who haven't watched it yeah oh uh just you know um there's all different ranges uh some people are very filthy so you'll have things like feces and stuff all over the house where they just get into oh, a state wait. where they don't care Ooh. about it oh, um, other, other people who are collectors <laughs> but they're obsessive so they're organized but they have a warehouse full of stuff that's just weighing them down you and know, other people these... you can't even walk through their house because it's just piled full of yeah. stuff that still has the tags on it Yes. Not even out of the boxes, just rooms and rooms full of stuff just piled up on top of each other. Like literally to the ceiling. Yeah. And, and they uh, cannot get rid of it. They'll call right. a psychologist in to try to help them clean up and kind of, you know, uh, purge their house of all this extra stuff. And they freak out. They cannot get rid of their stuff. Yeah. They really it's really it. disturbing. Yeah. And it's I've some, actually seen that in, yeah, in, some, in reality. Like, oh, really? I, yeah, I, I went out with a girl whose mother was like that. Mm. And at one point they were um, downsizing because they were getting older and they wanted to move into an apartment so they didn't have to go up and down stairs and things like that. And they were having to purge their stuff. And they had like, you know, 30 years or more worth of stuff. And like, you know, some of it was stuff that the kids had used over the course of the year, but they, they didn't want to get rid of anything. And it was like the, the, the mother had this technique where she was like kind of like, oh, um, well, don't get rid of that. That's so-and-so's. 
And then so-and-so would be like, well, no, that's, I, I don't care about that. Like, you know, get rid of it. And they'd be like, yeah. oh no, well, it's, it's not, it's not hers. It's so-and-so's, you know? So it was just kind of like, like <laughs> just to see the kind of mental gymnastics that they would go through to kind of avoid getting rid of like the, the most useless crap. Yeah. It was, it was pretty stunning. Yeah. Well, that's for sure. And some of the, on that show, some of the people too are, and I think this pertains to our topic. We're talking about attachment to material goods. Uh, this one guy was really sad. He was a very brilliant inventor and he had actually like, he had worked on the, the battery array for a NASA space shuttle and a bunch of stuff. And then he had had this trauma. Um, and forgive me, I forget what exactly his trauma was, but he got to the point where he was now collecting cars, trying to make an electric car, but he was really just an old dude out in the woods with a big pile of metal, you know, and he wasn't actually going to do anything. So they were now he was threatened <coughs> with losing his property. The County said, if he didn't clean it up, he'd lose it. So long story short, they're going through all this stuff and they pull out this, they're like, can we throw this away or how about this? And he's saying no to everything. And they pull out hmm. this old, like a, uh, you know, like a hand mixer where you have the, the, hmm. the wires around the edge and you have like a, I guess it's just called a mixer, right? But it was like a big one for a KitchenAid and hmm. it was broke, broken and rusted. And they were like, what about this? And he said, no, I want to keep that. So they started pressing him about what he would use it for. And it got to the point where he just kind of broke down and was like, I just, I just need it. I just can't, you know, I can't get rid of it. Um, and it was just like a total block. Um, but all of these things uh, appear to come from some kind of trauma. You know, people have either lost their spouse or their child was killed, you know, or they saw a murder or something like that happen where it broke them psychologically. And now the only thing that fills that hole is this stuff, but they're so broken. Um, I mean, it's huh. really, it's a sad show. It really is. Uh, mm-hmm. some of the people are, are real, uh, like bad people that you kind of love to hate, you know, where you are just like screaming at people for throwing away a Lego and, <laughs> <laughs> but the, uh, that, that definitely, that show is the extreme of what we're talking about. That's where you have a, a, a deep, unexplainable, critical attachment to something that literally has no value. And it's a hundred percent psychological. But I think we see shades of that throughout society, for sure. Yeah, I think looking at those uh, extreme examples, um, although they are really extreme, um, if we, uh, you know, if we we attempt to to see how how that that sort of thing may be playing out in all of us, just to not such to not to such an extent as as or not as, as as extreme you know it's it's helpful to watch these things and put yourselves you know try to put yourself in that position and, and seeing that okay maybe i don't hoard you know maybe i don't have a warehouse full of things but what you know how, how does this apply to me how 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 do i have these tendencies you know and and what yeah. what sort of items do i uh collect which which i probably don't need you know how often do i buy things that i probably don't need yeah yeah, I think, I think and, it, and you can take it to a logical extension too. I mean, if you if you look at people who are kind of like you know embodying this kind of consumerist culture and buying the things that they don't need as a, almost out of com- a compulsive need rather than actually um, out of a, a real need. I mean, you said that all these people are traumatized, Jonathan. Well, I mean, who really isn't traumatized in this day and age? You know, just by modern society you know it is we live in kind of a a traumatizing time so i can see how people kind of are looking to something external to themselves to try and kind of fill that hole that's true that's true like there might be more traumatized people who don't hoard you know 
or mm. people who don't consider themselves hoarders, but they have storage units. Another <laughs> thing I don't understand. Well, one of the articles that we read said that the number of storage units, at least in the United States, has kind of skyrocketed. And now people may not hoard things and keep them in their house, but they have a storage unit. Or they might have some stuff that they couldn't get rid of for some reason or another, but they still keep it for some reason. And mm-hmm. they pay money to have it in this unit, and they don't use it. Yeah. Yeah, the stats on that were like uh, from 1985 to 2008, the self-storage industry in the United States grew three times faster than the population. Yeah. With a per (laughs) capita square foot of storage space increasing over 600%. Well, it's it's funny, right? But it speaks to what the, the woman said in that clip that we are using the planet's resources on credit. I mean, how, Hmm. how better of an example than the fact that we, all of our stuff is being stored and not used. It's just mm-hmm. a ridiculous idea. I, I even thought about getting into that storage business at one point because it's a really good business, but it's like it's saturated now. Is I mean, it? It is. Like it's a growth industry. It probably is growth. I mean, but I live in a small town and we have two right here, and it's a it's a pretty small town. So you would think we really only need one or none. You know, everybody's got a house. It's a big industry <laughs> where we're at too. And there's not a lot of vacancy. You yeah. have to wait on a waiting list to get a storage unit. So to bring up the, what, the topic. What, they don't stuff over to somebody who needs it. Yeah, Because yeah, exactly. it's their stuff, Gabby. Yeah. It's my stuff. Yeah. Don't touch my it reminds stuff. Me, it reminds me of a non-profit, non-profit organization who said, okay, we need some stuff to send over, what was it, Greece, to a camp where they had all the Syrian refugees. And they said, okay, stop, stop. We have too much. Wait too much. You know? like everybody was like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Take the stuff. Well, so this may be I, like super cheesy metaphor, but, uh, you know, is this the American dream? Is, is what we have right now? Or, you know, I kind of want to get into that topic. Like, it, was the American dream ever real? You know, was it real for a minute and then it got distorted? Because um, I think that there's something in there. I don't. I don't really think that our entire, I say our, cause so like I live in America, but that the entire country of America is this, how do I say like dark twisted result of malintent, you know, that the existence of this country is a result of that. I think there were people that were involved in, and let's be honest, the conquest of this country, it wasn't a settling, but I think that there were people that were in that group that were like, okay, we're going to make a new life, a new, you know, a new place, you know, we're going to do things. We're going to be independent and free. I think that actually was there, but then it just very quickly got squashed out. And so mm-hmm. that's what I wonder is like the American dream have been really a, a, a thing anymore. Cause before the show, we were talking about it and like my American dream is just not to stress about bills. I don't need a Lamborghini, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Or anything crazy like that. It's basically just to like live, you know, I'm in the system. So I want to live in the system comfortably. Uh, granted, you know, boohoo world's tiniest violin, <laughs> all that. But I think that's what the, the dream has kind of now shifted to, basically just not being stressed out as opposed to being successful. Well, what is the American dream? Like what – can you state it? Yeah, I don't it? even know. I as don't know. American? I mean uh, health, health <laughs> and happiness, right? <laughs> I don't know. Is, is pursuit of happiness well, – like, you know, is, is, it ever, is it ever stated this is what the American dream is? No, not really. I think really. it's or is whatever it kind of... people say it is. 
I think, and I think right now it's American dream. I think of like the big house, the fancy car, two point five children, (laughs) white picket fence. Yeah, into the suburbs. I, I feel weird even saying the word. Everybody in in listening to us right now should be deeply offended that I even said American Dream out loud. You know, based on the based on the state of the world. Um, but it is a thing, and I think it's what's driving at least America's part of consumerist culture on the planet is what people consider to be this ephemeral, undefined dream. And the dream is hmm. really just more. It's just always more. Hmm. Well, we do have well, a I mean, clip. Has... I kind of okay. forgot what was in it. The American Dream. That's yeah. what's in it. Yeah. yeah. It's called uh, What is the American Dream? Ah, okay. That's the American part. Dream is based on rampant consumerism. It, it, it is based upon the fact that mainstream media and especially commercial advertising, uh, all corporations who need this infinite growth have convinced us or brainwashed uh, most people in America and hence the world that uh, we have to have X number of material possessions and the possibility of gaining in infinitely more material possessions in order to be happy. That's just not true. So how, why do people continue to, to buy in this way, which is ultimately eco-genocidal in its systemic effects, cumulatively? And it just is classical operant conditioning. You simply put inputs of conditioning into the organism and you have outputs of uh, desired behaviors or goals or objectives. And it has all the resources of technology. And they boast about how they get into the minds of infants. What they hear uh, is already making them conditioned to the brand. Then you see, well, that's how uh, people have been such fools. In a way, they've been taught to be fools. It's a value system disorder. You know, if there is any testament to the plasticity of the human mind, If there is any proof to how malleable human thought is and how easily conditioned and guided people can become based on the nature of their environmental stimulus and what it reinforces, the world of commercial advertising is the proof. You have to stand in awe at the level of brainwashing where these programmed robots known as consumers wander the landscape only to walk into a store and spend, say, $4,000 on a handbag that likely costs $10 to make in a sweatshop overseas, only for the brand status it supposedly represents in the culture. Or perhaps the ancient communal traditions which increase trust and cohesiveness in society, which have now been hijacked by acquisitive materialistic values where now annually we exchange useless crap a few times a year. And we might wonder why so many today have a compulsion to shopping and acquisition when it is clear that they have been conditioned from childhood to expect material goods as a sign of their status with friends and family. The fact is, the foundation of any society are the values that support its operation. And our society, as it exists, can only operate if our values support the conspicuous consumption it requires to continue the market system. Seventy-five years ago, consumption in America and much of the first world was half of what we see today per person. Today's new consumer culture has been manufactured and imposed due to the very real need for higher and higher levels of consumption. And this is why most corporations now spend more money on advertising than the actual process of product creation itself. 
They work diligently to create a false need for you to fill, and it happens to work. That was ominous. <laughs> yeah, that was ominous. I mean, but it makes sense, you know. Uh, while, while we were listening to that, I, was, I looked up uh, just American Dream on Wikipedia, and uh, it's... <laughs> So this is my research skills at, at play here. Uh, so they do say they, the American dream is a national ethos of the United States. The set of ideals, democracy, rights, liberty, opportunity, and equality in which freedom includes the opportunity for prosperity and success, as well as an upward social mobility for the family and children achieved through hard work in a society with a few barriers. So this, the upward social mobility is the part that I personally don't give a shit about. Pardon my French. Mm. But the... Uh, it was coined by uh, an author, James Truslow Adams, in 1931. Is that life should be better and richer and fuller for everyone, with opportunity for each according to ability or achievement, regardless of social class or circumstances of birth. That is not what we have right now. <laughs> 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 it's pretty much like the exact opposite, I think, of what we have right now. If that's where the phrase came from, you know, better and richer and fuller for everyone, it's the opposite. I mean, yeah, we have a lot yeah. of stuff. We have a lot of access to information, but are people happy? Not very many of yeah. them. No. And it's very interesting that you said that your own personal dream is just basically to be left alone. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> just leave me alone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you can see how that doesn't quite jive with the uh, quote-unquote American dream. You know, right. the idea that one would be upwardly mobile and... Uh, prosperous and all this kind of stuff and you're more just like you know i just kind of want to do my thing yeah yeah and i think in my mind that's what you know so let's say it's a fluid definition in my mind that's what it is it's more of like the libertarian kind of ideal basically just leave me alone mm. but uh <laughs> you know it's fluid but it is interesting that that uh, you know and i there's the famous george carlin bit about the american dream uh, right. You know, and it's really just a dream. And I think everybody's familiar with that. And that's, it's poignant, you know, it's a phrase that's easy to tear down. So, mm -hmm. um, but I think when we look at it really in detail, we can see, uh, you know, that it's not true. Um, and that mm -hmm. everybody is dissatisfied and they're participating in a, in a pathology that causes them to fill a continuous black hole, you know, with, with nothing stuff. substantial. Yeah. With stuff. So we're seeing and are going to continue to see the repercussions of this, I think, in the way people act, uh, the way they pay attention to the world around them, uh, you know, even like the political sphere, you know, and uh, social sphere and stuff like that. The attitude that's, I guess, fostered by consumerism is, is leaking into other parts of, you know, the way we interact with each other. Well, that uh, just can explain all the, the Black Friday stampedes at Walmart. Mm or yeah. some other big box stores. I think there was some guy that got trampled to death at one yeah. of the Walmart Black Friday events. Uh, yeah. I didn't hear back. many awful horror stories about Black Friday this year, but in years past, there would be all these videos of people getting into fistfights over DVDs or flat screen TVs and mm -hmm. arguing and spitting on each other and cutting to the front of the line and shooting each other and camping out in front of the store all night long. Yeah, That's because bizarre. now everybody buys their stuff online, you know. It's not because <laughs> yeah. nobody wants to be trampled anymore. 
<laughs> the, the last, the last scary one that I saw, aside from the obvious, like the people being trampled, was uh, people were fighting over a pile of like Westinghouse coffee pots that are like, you know, they probably cost like a dollar to make, and and they're fighting over this pile of coffee pots because they're on sale for five, you know. Do you think that people just want like the fight though? Is that why? I think that's like, they part just want to yeah. fight about stuff. Yeah. Like, you know, That's there's all that, that, you know, it's like, it's like a bar fight, right? Like, you know, sometimes there's a guy who just wants to get into a fight and that's, you know, that's why he's out there. That's what he wants. He's had a couple of drinks and he just wants to fight. I want to, I wonder if there's that impulse in a lot of people and Black Friday is kind of like the one time a year where they're like, I'm going to go fight for stuff. Sure. That's what I'm going to do. Sure. Yeah. Cause the people who are not into that kind of thing, they stay home. I know loads of people are like, yeah. there's no way I'm leaving the house today. No yeah, way I'm, go I'm going out. Town. Yeah, and then yeah. there's other people who just like to mix it up and you know be in the middle of the hubbub, and I yeah. think it's within their character. A lot of us are reading the myth of the out-of-character crime, not necessarily mm. that all these people are committing criminal acts when they go to Black Friday. Some of them are, but some people just like that whole chaotic feeling, and they get into mm. it. Sure. It's almost like it taps into some sort of primal nature some sort of animalistic force that's inside of them or you know that is within them and they it's almost like temporarily they lose their individual um identity and it turns into almost like a crowd phenomena it's it's really strange (laughs) but the 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 thing that triggered this for me or made me made me see it like this was actually watching a video i think it was last year um and it was someone compiling all of the um all of the footage of um, americans running in and fighting in the stores and stuff on black friday and they um they attached uh, a david attenborough um, nature documentary voiceover. <laughs> <laughs> you should check it out. And he's, he's basically like explaining, he's talking about penguins or something or, and, or monkeys. But yeah. it's just made, it, it really fit. It fit perfectly. Yeah. And it was like, that's what's happening, isn't it? Because yeah. these people, I'm sure some of them, maybe not all of them, but I'm sure some of them, if you had a, you know, a civilized conversation with them at any other time, um, they probably seem like fairly normal people. But when they get into this sort of group mindset, it's like they lose that rational uh, aspect mm-hmm. of themselves and they sort of revert back to this primitive, uh, I guess, sort of animal kind of thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then it's it's really interesting to watch. Yeah, it's fa- I mean, uh, from my own perspective, I've been to a lot of concerts uh, in my life and that mentality you can see there too, where it's like people a certain uh, individuality kind of shuts off and you just Mm. start to move with like, yeah, you really lose your identity and start to move with everybody else. I feel like a very similar thing happens in this case too. They get in there and you're, you're no longer really Elliot at the Walmart. Now you're just (laughs) part of the hive, you know? (laughs) Yeah. That, uh, what's, what's the name of that psychologist? Um, Gustav something or other. Gustav that's yeah, it. Definitely. Yeah. Who wrote the the crowd? Yeah. Um, Psychology kind of gets the into masses. that. Yeah, exactly. Like when when you are kind of part of this crowd, you kind of take on this mob mentality. This this kind of like it's like your own individual psychology and things that you would do or wouldn't do is is kind of gone, and you kind of just adopt the the mentality of the mob. Right. It's pretty scary. Yeah. 
Uh, one of our chatters made a comment uh, uh, <clears throat> about what we were talking about, like the impulse to get that cheap coffee pot and to fight over it uh, and pointed out that, that you need that to move up in the social hierarchy. Right. So I wonder if that's a subconscious impulse, because if you sat somebody down and said, you think that getting a, a, a you know, let's not say a coffee pot, like a big screen TV is actually going to move your social status up. And they thought about it and responded. They'd be like, no, not really. But in that moment, it's like this, uh, like Elliot, like you said, it's an animalistic. It's, it's uh, not able to be put into words necessarily the drive to like, I have this deep desire to move up in my hierarchy. So if I get this thing, that'll happen. And that's as far as it goes, you know. That's the selfish really, gene at work. Yeah, and I don't think you yeah. really even in, um, cognitize it. You know, it's just it's just there, just there. Yeah, the more things that you acquire provides you with a higher social status, which may you know, um, you know, inadvertently sort of attract uh, potential mates um, and essentially further your your offspring. Uh, perhaps that is one aspect to it. Yeah, well, it's just, just like it's essentially evolutionary biology, yeah. right? I mean, uh, young young women go to tanning booths because peacocks preen. You know, it's a similar, like, <laughs> the evolutionary biology of why we do certain things. I think that does make sense. And chicks dig dudes with nice cars. <laughs> yes. Yep. And nice TVs. <laughs> Got to get that nice car. video game system. <laughs> Yeah. Coffee pot. Well, yeah. well, that crossed my mind earlier, when we, Doug, when you were talking about planned obsolescence and the quality of things, how you no longer see, like, our bolts last three years longer than the competitions. Now it's like, our bolts will get you laid. You know, it's not <laughs> about the quality That's of it. it. It's yeah. true. It's a sex It's appeal. true. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and the, and the advertising works on that. It's like the sexy woman in the bikini holding the bolts. It's mm-hmm. like there's there's no relevance there whatsoever, but it's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. your subconscious has just been told that those bolts are going to get you laid. Yeah. <laughs> I portrayed the communist system in the former Soviet Union in a negative light, but actually they should be recognized in the sense that their stuff was willed to last forever. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Reminds me of I met a Russian grandmother last year in Siberia. She was so proud of all her Soviet era, you know, items, you know, kitchen utensils, everything. <laughs> she didn't buy anything new since then. You know? <laughs> I was like, wow. I was like, wow. I'm still using it. Yeah, well, you think yeah. that had crossed my mind when we were talking about, like, uh, absence of, of resources. I mean, you think back to, like, World War One and Two, and during that era where somebody might find a piece of metal and curve it a little bit to use it as a spoon. But now mm. I can go steal my neighbor's spoon, and he's never even going to know I was there. You know, like, <laughs> it's like, he won't even yeah. notice the spoon is missing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Well, it's like you know, I'm I'm a cook, right? So one of my favorite things in the kitchen is like a cast iron pan, like a good cast iron pan. And those things are so sturdy; they get handed down from generation to generation, and they cook like amazing. They distribute heat perfectly; like they're just amazing. They're awesome. But can you find them now? It's really hard to, especially if you're like a little bit more picky and you don't want one that might have lead mixed in with it or something like that. So you're not going to necessarily buy the ones that are coming from China or whatever. Well, but, it's um, interesting you mention <clears throat> that because you can find them, at least in the U.S., at Walmart. <laughs> and oh, they're, yeah. cheaper. they're cheaper than all the other cookware. But do you know that they're good? 
Right. They yeah. have a, it's a, it's because a, it's a big brand, those ones that are at Walmart. And I don't, I can't vouch for like the quality of them. Yeah. If they're that. good or not. Yeah. Yeah. Is it Lodge? Lodge. Yes. Yeah. 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 See, those ones are not as good. If you go to like a flea market or something like that or a secondhand store or something and you can find a cast iron pan there, you will see there is a huge difference in quality, like just in the way that it cooks. Like not to say that those lodge ones are bad. They're not. They're good. But there's something very different about one. Like I had one at one time that had like the date stamped into the back of it and it was 18 something or other, like eight, yeah, late 1800s. Awesome. Wow. And that was an amazing pan. Like it was, it was, it was, it was like it was nonstick, but it wasn't. Obviously, it didn't have any Teflon sprayed on it or anything like that. And I just compare that to like if you go to like a kitchen store or something like that, and you look at some of the pans there, they're like cheap pieces of garbage. A lot of times they're like Teflon, and like those things are not going to be passed down from generation to generation. They're going to like get scratched and they're going to get thrown out. So it's passed down from generation to generation anymore. It'd be like people would pass down like old furniture. So antiques have such a value or, you know, when the daughter would move out of the house, once she got married, they'd send a bunch of stuff with her. And now people just say, Oh, I'm going to go to Ikea and buy this or when they get married. That's the advertisement. That's the advertisement for Ikea. Some couple gets this like old apartment or house with all the furniture, very high quality furniture from their grandparents. Mm-hmm. They get rid of all of it and go and modernize oh. the whole thing with crappy <laughs> Ikea, you know. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Well, that's, I've, I feel you, Doug. I've got some things that my parents handed down and, and it's interesting to see the discrepancy and like the quality and like also the value mm-hmm. that they have. Like I have an oak table that's it's got to be from the 1800s i don't really even know it's got like uh, wrought iron clips on the bottom that hold the whole thing together hmm. so i got it from my folks but it's um i at one point was like oh i wonder how much i could sell this for i looked around the area i live in a rural area so there's not there's a ton of those kind of items here so it'd be like 100 bucks but if i drove it to like phoenix arizona or like houston i could sell it for like five grand so yeah. it's really funny how that, like, the value, you know, based on where things are and, like, because around here, old stuff is not necessarily cool. It's just because all our stuff is old. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 You know, you know. it, w- it was mentioned in the first clip um, how we we don't value the the way that things, the journey that different items have, have sort of gone through uh, to get to our homes and or mm. you know like our clothes for instance but the problem is is that when we buy them so cheap you know when you exploit children in bangladesh <laughs> you pay them a pittance and then you you come up with a really crap quality shirt and then you bring it over to the uk or the us and sell it for you know like 10 or 20 dollars um it's it, because it's so craply made and because it's so cheap, it's it's easy to fall into the um, fall into the mindset of basically not seeing value in that item. And and I think sometimes it's kind of granted because it is really crap quality. Um, but mm. it doesn't. It kind of just perpetuates this mindset whereby we are entitled to having all of these things all at once. And it always uh, it makes me think like, okay, if everything went down the the pot, you know, if for whatever reason, you know, everything collapsed. What would we do? You know, none of us know how to knit a, knit a, a jumper. 
You know, yeah. we don't know how to how to how to sew. We don't know how to you know um, smith iron or anything like that. So we mm. can't go to the shop and buy a spoon. So what are we going to use instead? And I guess that's probably not a good, very good example. But because of the situation that we've got ourselves into now, it's like everything is so easy. It's we've got so much variety and, and so much options. But it, it is fostering this sense of entitlement in, in so many people. And it's kind of disempowering us as well. Because, you know, like our, our grandmothers, they would know how to do all of these cool things. And they've seemingly just got lost uh, through yeah. the generations. And now we're in a situation where we are completely dependent upon uh, upon the, this system, which could, yeah. you know, is not necessarily um, set in stone forever, you know. Yeah, I think it, that's a uh, that's a really great point. Actually, um, it, uh, it makes me think of uh, there was a guy that I had met and made friends with when I was in school in France, and he was uh, an Italian man. Uh, his, his name is Dario. I can say that. I don't think that he's ever going to hear that. But um, he was a he was a huge inspiration because he actually had his grandfather's pants and shoes from Italy huh. that he had him, his, his mother had repaired them and he himself had hand repaired them over time. And he was like, these are great. I wear them every day, you know, and they've wow. been around since 1923. Um, wow. you know, you just don't see that. Uh, but to no. the kind of thrift that you were talking about, or I guess the ability to roll with a situation, his character, like he always stands out in my memory as a person who could like kind of take anything. Like if you got into a hairy situation to be completely even keel, you know, if you rip something, you'd be like, oh, there's a needle in my bag here. We'll sew that up. You know, like all those kind mm-hmm. of things. A real inspirational person from that kind of, uh, you know, uh, productivity and, and being able to roll with the punches um, point of view. Uh, but that, I think, is a huge thing right now uh, in this country. I mean, people don't know how to, you know, um, say like two different screws have a different type of thread on them, you know, or like uh, how to start a fire and do like a, a rudimentary weld with a coat hanger, you know, like all those kind of things where you might be able to piece together the stuff that's around you. People don't have those skills anymore and nobody's teaching them either, you know, except like parents really, um, there's no school that you can go to for practical life skills. <laughs> you know? Maybe we should start one. Yeah. I mean, I think <laughs> there are like survival. There's like survival academies the and stuff. arts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They do have but some even the survival called stuff. life skills, but they teach the same crap that they teach in regular schools. <laughs> like even the survivalist stuff isn't quite the same thing. You know, like that's like, you know, if you were dropped in the middle of the woods somewhere, like would you be able to find your way somewhere and, you know, take uh, forage for food and that kind of stuff. Whereas like more practical stuff like how to mend clothing or shoes yes. or something or yeah. like that, that kind of stuff. I think you're right. doesn't really get taught. Right. Or how to like, you know, fashion a fish hook and catch a fish. It's not going to be elegant, but it can yeah. work, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's no need for any of that. You can just order it off Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> I get my, I get my blue apron with a prepackaged salmon filet and, uh, you know, capers. <laughs> And a drone That's will true. deliver it to your house. Here and get convenience. Yeah. So uh, let's uh, let's go to Zoya's uh, pet health segment for today, and then I think when we come back, we can kind of wrap it up, and we'll talk about you know practical solutions. 
if there are any. <laughs> We're going to get dark. <laughs> And welcome to the Beth Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. My name is Zoya, and today I would like to share with you a part from a lecture by Rupert Sheldrake on the topic of unexplained powers of animals. I shared this recording a while ago, so some of you may already heard it, but maybe others didn't. And this talk is so fascinating, it is worth sharing again. Enjoy and have a great weekend! One of the commonest kinds of telepathy that we heard about with cats uh, was their ability to know when their owners were planning to take them to vets. Uh, <laughs> many cats respond to this intention by disappearing. Uh, when I received several hundred accounts of this behavior from people in America, Britain, Germany, and other parts of the world, um, it seemed that this was a very common kind of experience. And of course, when it happens, it's annoying to the cat owners because uh, they, they had to cancel the appointment or search all over for the cat. Um, and people soon learn that they, if they get out the carrying basket, the cat's going to disappear. So people don't get the carrying basket out and the cat still disappears. Um, sometimes people make their appointment for the vet when they're at work, so the cat doesn't overhear the telephone call. <laughs> but the cat still seems to know. Um, in order to quantify this, we did a survey of all the veterinary clinics listed in the North London Yellow Pages. There are 65 clinics li listed. And uh, my assistant rang up them all and asked, um, whether they ever had a problem with people uh, missing appointments with the cat. 64 out of 65 said this was a very common occurrence. It happened all the time. Um, the remaining one said they'd, it happened so often they'd abandoned an appointment system for cats. People... <laughs> people just had to turn up with them. Um, we heard a lot of interesting stories, usually not from the vets themselves, but from their receptionists or assistants, who are the people who dealt with appointments. And here's a typical story from a veterinary receptionist in North London. It's not always the cat basket. The clients know that once they produce the basket, there's not a hope in hell of catching the cats. <laughs> so it's usually before the baskets have been brought out. People say they get home around 5.30 p.m. and the cat's always on the doorstep, but the day of the appointment, he's not there. <laughs> I think they've definitely read their thoughts because the owner's not been in all day, so they can't have seen the owner's upset or behaving any differently. So this is, this is one of the things cats are particularly good at. The cats are extremely sensitive, but usually when the owner's intentions directly concern themselves. Um, dogs... Um, often pick up when people are planning to take them for walks. No one finds this surprising if it's at a routine time or if the dog sees them getting out the lead or putting on their coat or shoes or whatever. The interesting thing is when the dogs do it, when it's an unusual time and the dog's in a different room, even before a person's got up from a chair, they 
there, some, many people have told me they just have to think, I'm going to take the dog for a walk, it's a nice day, and the dog will come bounding into the room, really excited. This is something we tested by experiment with a woman who lives in the north of England. Um, she had five dogs, and she said this happened all the time. In this experiment, we shut up the dogs in an outbuilding with a video camera running so we could observe them. And at randomly chosen times, she thought for five minutes about taking them for a walk before doing so. On the videos, what you see is that most of the time the dogs are just lying around doing nothing. But during this five-minute period, they get progressively more excited until by the time she comes in, they're sitting in a semicircle around the door, ex eager and expectant. Um, as she comes in to take them for the walk, and they don't do this at any other time. In this case, of course, we can rule out the obvious standard explanations in terms of body language, uh, dogs picking up intentions, routine, etc. Many animals know when their owners are planning to give them a treat, um, when they're just thinking of getting up to go to the fridge or a cupboard to get out some special treat, the dog or cat will come bounding in, excited and expectant. The main thing that I've studied in detail, uh, as I mentioned this morning, is the ability of dogs to know when their owners are coming home. In the course of my research with animals, um, after my book, uh, this book, Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home, was first published, I got a whole new lot of stories coming uh, to me and many more cases coming to my attention, uh, which are absolutely fascinating. And some of the most interesting concern parrots. I'm now convinced that the most dramatically impressive telepathic animals are parrots, particularly African greys. The big advantage of parrots is that some of them can speak. People with dogs and cats often say, if only they could talk. Well, quite a lot of parrots can. And um, I've been working in the last uh, couple of years with what may be one of the most remarkable uh, parrots in the world. Uh, it's an African grey called Enkisi that lives in Manhattan. I heard about this first from uh, Enkisi's owner, Aimé Morgana, who got in touch with me by email through my website, having read my book. And she thought if I was interested in the kinds of things I'd written about, I might be interested in her parrot. She told me that her parrot had a vocabulary of hundreds of words, and that she trained it to uh, use language in a kind of natural way, talking to it as you'd talk to a baby or a young child. The, the end piece's vocabulary is now about 700 words, and he speaks in sentences. He's uttered at least 7,000 different sentences. Now, the best studied of all parrots is a parrot called Alex that belongs to a woman called Irene Pepperberg, who's now at MIT. Pepperberg's parrot, after 20 years, has a vocabulary of about 200 words. The importance of Pepperberg, though, is that she's demonstrated beyond doubt that parrots can use language intelligently. They can form abstract concepts. They can do, in fact, all the things that chimps and gorillas can do. Animal, people have trained chimps and gorillas to speak using American Sign Language. You can't speak, teach them to speak in English using ordinary language because they don't have the right vocal apparatus. But they do use their hands in, make gesture, in making gestures. And there have been very impressive results with um, starting in the 1960s with chimps and gorillas teaching them to speak in American Sign Language. It's been shown that they can use concepts, they can use abstract uh, they, they can use abstractions, and they have what psychologists call a theory of mind. In other words, they can understand that others have feelings and beliefs.
a kind of self-consciousness. What Pepperberg has shown is that parrots can do all this too. And why this, and they can actually do it better. Why this was so shocking, surprising, and when she started doing this controversial, because nobody believed this would be possible. People were ready to credit chimpanzees and gorillas with some limited mental capacities, because they, they're like us, they have the same kind of DNA, and they have brains rather like ours, although smaller. The parrots are literally bird-brained, and, and their brain is less than the size of a walnut, and they don't have speech areas the same way we do. They shouldn't be able to do these things. Yet, what Pepperberg has shown is that Alex can use language in abstractions. She can learn, for example, Alex has learned the word red. So you can show Alex a tray of objects, all different colors, and say, give me the red one. And the parrot will bend over and pick up the red object, even if he's never seen that object or anything of that shape before, showing that he's abstracted the word red from particular things. He can do this with shapes. He can do it with things that are same or different. And a variety of concepts that human children acquire by the age of three or three and a half uh, have now been acquired by Alex. Well, we've shown with Enkisi that uh, the same kind of thing has happened, but even more so. Enkisi's linguistic skills and development have more or less paralleled those of ch human children up to about age four or three and a half. Enkisi is now four. Of course, we don't expect this development to continue. We're not expecting him to go through uh, graduate school, get a PhD and so on. Um, but his, his abilities are quite remarkable. This is the main point of um, Aimee's research, to study the communication and use of language. She's trying to find more about animal minds and how you can talk to parents. But as a byproduct of this research, she noticed that um, the parrot was responding to her thoughts by saying what she was thinking about. So she'd be looking at a magazine at a car, and uh, the parrots at the other end of the room can't see the magazine, and, and the parrot says, that's a, that's a great car. And she's looking at her, people dancing on television. She says, they're dancing. This happened so many times. Uh, she kept a log uh, after I first got in touch with her. Um, she started keeping a log. There's now more than 600 spontaneous incidents. Psychic? Psychic goats? Yes. <laughs> Psychic goats. <laughs> That's that was, pretty cool. That was fascinating. Yeah. 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 Thanks, thanks, Zoya. I've heard Sheldrick before. He's a pretty interesting character. Yeah. I definitely experienced that, like, sort of telekinesis, where you're not doing anything. You don't pick up your keys or move to the door. You're just like, hmm, I'm going to go for a walk. And then the dog is like, what? No, <laughs> perfect. <laughs> 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 yeah. Well, it was cool. Um, you guys so, buy your pets Christmas presents. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Usually like a chew toy or something, yeah. <laughs> so, If what, I had uh, a dog, I would buy it lots of presents. And <laughs> give it lots of hugs. <laughs> I'll buy him a cookie. <laughs> To our uh, to our topic for today, uh, what uh, what do you guys think are some practical like solutions for not you know obviously we're not going to end it but combating consumerism kind of in your own mind? I, I would say basically like try to 
well, obviously before you buy something, think about whether or not you really need it. But when you have like, look at the stuff that you do have and really think about, am I going to use this? You know, does this work for me? Can I get rid of it? Can I give it to someone or is this mm -hmm. legitimately trash? You know, stuff like, like just when you loosen up that space around you, uh, I think I, in my own experience, um, I felt a little bit more free uh, because of it, even though I'm still part of the system and I still suffer from consumerism, you can do little bits, you know. Mm. It so also helps to not watch television, so mm. that way you're not exposed yeah. to commercials. Mm. I was going to say something similar. Yeah, like it's it's kind of like <clears throat> not exposing yourself to that that media. Um, you know, I don't, I haven't watched like broadcast television in quite some time. Um, there was a, a period there where I didn't even have a TV. Um, but, uh, you know, I would sometimes, you know, watch shows like on the internet or something like that, where there wasn't the, the same kind of advertising. And I'm actually blown away now when I actually am, you know, over at somebody's house and they've got broadcast TV and I mm -hmm. see commercials and stuff. It's like, sickening. These, these are crazy. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's kind of insane. Like, it's, it's like you get used to it. It's so interesting. Yeah, the replacement is now the internet. And in the last few months, I have like eight occasions where I cannot read an article because it says that I have my ad block on. Yeah. And that happens. Yeah, that's true. Turn it off so I can read the article. It's like, Arr! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I found a similar thing. Um, speaking to some of my colleagues at work, um, they'll be talking about certain products and assume that I know what those products are. Mm. And I mm. just don't know because I, I, I don't have a TV and I haven't watched TV in maybe like four or five years. So mm. uh, they're, they're talking about things as if it's common knowledge, but it's only common knowledge to people who see the advertisements every single day. Um, and yeah. it's amazing because I, I can live quite <coughs> fine without those products. You know, I don't need them. I'm not missing out on anything. But you, uh, you become so... Um, desensitized to it that when you actually go back and and watch it it's it's almost like cringeworthy you know how these yeah, how 15 minutes it's some i mean they seem to be getting bigger and bigger each time as well so yeah. you know now there's like 10 minutes of adverts every half an hour um, yeah, well and it's crazy. the same repeated theme it's junk food it's prescription drugs and it's cell phones mm -hmm. over and over I got a dumb yep. phone. You guys will be surprised how useless a smartphone can really is for you guys. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so you traded in your smartphone for a dumb phone? Yes. Uh, it's like uh, an immense relief, actually. I thought yeah. it was going to be <laughs> much harder. So like, oh, God, I don't I don't not get any WhatsApp message at all now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> that sounds... Uh... That sounds like if a really good wants idea. To talk with me, tell me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've heard of people doing that and just saying like, you know, you just basically set up an arrangement with your friends. Like, it, it's silly that you even have to would have to say something like this, but you're like, like don't text me, just call me. Or if you yeah. do text me, mm -hmm. I'm going to call you back because I have a yeah. dumb phone now. You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think a good thing for the holidays, since it's kind of the inspiration for the show, is you know, we all have family and friends, is to offer something of substance. And I was sharing this before the show with the other hosts, that you can make a card and offer a service to someone as something, as a gift. So if you have a family member that has children and they need a babysitter or you want to cook somebody dinner, those can be 
great gifts and it's in individualized and you don't have to pay for it. And now it, it's actually useful. And, you know, I've done this in the past and sometimes people don't take you up on it, but it's the gesture of giving of yourself, of being of service and not feeling like you need to buy them something that most likely they're not going to use. Yeah. That's the part yeah. that really gets me. It's just the distribution of useless crap around mm-hmm. Christmas yeah. time. Just to say that you got somebody something. I mean, I yeah. appreciate the gesture and I like giving people things that they could really use and what they need, but it's just become so ridiculous and superficial now that you're just giving people junk and you know they're not going to use it and I just don't see the yeah. point. Yeah. And really it's like you give them junk and they give you junk back. So now you've yeah. kind of exchanged junk and neither of you are going to use that ever. And it's just, it's like, it's an, a completely empty gesture. Yeah, yeah. can't and we you just be like, together for Christmas? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So nobody wants anything for Christmas, eh? No. <laughs> it, really, it, really, it really kind of stresses me out just thinking of having the shop. Yeah. Huh. I read an interesting article recently that said that if we uh, asked people what they wanted for Christmas and then mm-hmm. got them that, that you would that the country would save like X billion dollars. Yes. Because of how many things people get that people don't want and then they take back or they throw away or they never use it. Mm-hmm. Or instead yeah. of saying, what do you want? What do you need? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, some something that that I found uh, last year was instead of buying um, my co- well, instead of buying my cousin a present, I didn't know what to get him. I know that he kind of uh, he follows the paleo diet, so I decided to make him some macadamia butter. Um, mm-hmm. It's some stuff that I I use, you know, I I was eating quite a lot of last year. And so I made him just a jar of this macadamia butter, and I'm, it was really tasty. <laughs> it was with, like, coconut oil and vanilla, a little bit of salt and some um, some honey. <laughs> so you can imagine it was really good macadamia butter. And so, uh, yeah, I, I gave him a little jar of this, and, you know, he was absolutely over the moon, you know. <laughs> it, and, you know, it, you know, like, I could have just bought him something that was – you know, some silly gesture, something that he probably not used. But I know that him and his wife and maybe his child enjoyed something that I'd made for them. Uh, you know, it wasn't it wasn't in um you know, it was useful. So if you can make something, like, you know, make a card, but also if you have a particular skill, you know, if you're good at cooking, offer to make them a dinner. I like that one, Erica. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, if you if you're good at making cakes, maybe make them some cookies or something, as long as they're not too you know uh, fattening people. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was watching uh, one of those nature shows where guys go and visit tribal people, and as they were leaving, as a way to thank them, they gave them a couple of pigs, and they were so grateful, <laughs> and they just started crying, and it was a really touching moment. So if you can get somebody something really good that you know that they'll use pig. and you know that they'll appreciate, they give them a pig. <laughs> <laughs> Or some live chicken. <laughs> With the recipe on how to prepare them. <laughs> I like the live chicken. I think I'm going to do that. <laughs> oh, but it is true. Like people have, which um, I work in the countryside. Some people give me vegetables from the garden. It's just like <laughs> the people that I remember the most. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So sweet. Yeah. 
Yeah. All right. Well, on that positive note of giving, let's uh, let's wrap up today's show. <laughs> if you guys are down, uh, yeah. Let's. Uh, we'll, we'll be back next week. Uh, I will not be here uh, next week, but the rest of the crew will, and uh, we'll see you then. Um, and be sure to tune into the SOT Radio Show on Sunday at noon Eastern time. Go to radio.sot.net. So thanks everybody, and uh, have a great weekend. Bye everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.